You're listening to the Flow Theory Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Wade Peary, and this is episode two of the Flow Theory Podcast. And boy, oh boy, am I fired up for this episode. I want each and every one of you out there, pull up a seat, butter your popcorn, and get ready for today's guest. We kicked off episode one with Mr. Ryan Broyles. And today, we have yet another college football legend, Mr. Colt Brennan, one of the greatest college football quarterbacks of all time. Colt was no stranger to breaking records at Hawaii. He broke 31 NCAA records during his time with the Hawaii Warriors. That, ladies and gents, is absolutely fucking ridiculous. If you told me that, I wouldn't believe it unless it was Colt because let me tell you something. Colt Brennan was just that good. He finished third in the Heisman Trophy voting his senior year and was also a finalist his junior year as well. Colt completed 70.4% of his passes during his Hawaii football career. An NCAA football record, ladies and gents. That's right. The most accurate NCAA football quarterback of all time. Yes. <laughs> this man was an absolute surgeon with the spiral. Really made it into an art form and was one of the greatest ever to spin it. What can I say? We are super excited to have Colt on the show. A couple other good stats about Colt. He broke Ty Detmer's national record of career touchdown passes with 131 and career touchdowns responsible for with 146. He also passed for over 4,000 yards in back-to-back-to-back seasons. Absolutely fucking ridiculous, ladies and gents. I could rattle off the stats and the records for you all day, but <laughs> we would need a whole podcast just for that because Colt Brennan was just that good. Anyways, ladies and gents, without further ado, let's go ahead and bring on the man I like to call not only one of the greatest ever to spin it, but the Sultan of QB Swag. Welcome to the show, Colt. Thanks so much for coming on. No problem. Thank you. All right, Colt, we'll get down to it, man. I know we discussed the legend of Bagger Vance a little bit and how Will Smith talks about finding the field in The Legend of Bagger Vance. I know you're a fan of that movie. I basically wanted to talk to you about a few of your moments throughout your football career where you found the field or when you were in the zone. 
yeah, obviously being in the zone is talked about in all sports. And um, definitely as I progressed after my sophomore year, um, when I would go out there and compete, um, I was constantly in the zone. I always, I always felt like I had a, I wouldn't say advantage, but it, it felt like I had a, a gift almost in what I was going out to do. And you would get immersed in yourself and immersed in your demeanor and your attitude. And it was, you know, looking back and watching games and watching me compete, it's kind of awesome to look back and to see myself in, the, in that moment as far as being in the zone. And yeah, dude, it's all sports have it. It's a correlation to all sports, but uh, Hawaii really gave me a chance to find it. And um, I had some, some great moments before I got to Hawaii. Um, but I definitely really found my, my niche in Hawaii. Were there any like particular moments, uh, Colt, that you can describe for us, like really vividly where, where there was maybe a, a couple of plays or a certain game where everything was really moving in slow motion for you out there? Well, I mean, specifically right off the bat, I remember the last game of my uh, sophomore year. We played San Diego State, and I believe that they had only allowed like 10 passing touchdowns it was something to that effect. They had only allowed so many passing touchdowns that season, like really, really low. I remember that game that my sophomore year, we were five and seven. We weren't this mighty team quite yet, but we had talent and we had a lot of young kids or a lot of young men. And I remember that game, um, whether it's Coach Jones, whether it's me, whether it's my receivers, it was like it all clicked. Um, it all came together. Whatever we were trying to learn that year, whatever we were trying to grasp, it was uh, pretty amazing, and um, I can't remember specifically. I don't know if it was – I remember I threw, like, five touchdowns. I, I don't know if it was in the first half or if it was in the game. We ended up winning that game against a team that was technically better than us, and it kind of was like – it was like the, the last kind of, like, uh, moment where, like, I felt like I finally grasped the offense, what we were trying to do, and I had that cohesion with my receivers and with my team, and we went out there and we lit it up. and. I just remember being in the zone, just it all coming together. You know, I, I, I enjoy watching my first year because I was kind of like a wild pony out there. I was, I'd be running a lot, scrambling a lot, trying to make things happen. Whereas in that game, I really got honed in on just, just executing. And I remember executing to the highest level. As the years progressed, you know, that, that ability became stronger. And I remember going out, um, there's just so many memories to try and, bring them down to a, a specific one um, is, is difficult at the moment. That's a good thing. But um, I just remember being in, especially my junior year, and then even more so my senior year, just being locked in and, and always getting in the zone come game day. Yeah, you know, I, it was very uh, fascinating to me, Colt, when researching for this interview. It's funny that you mentioned the 2005 season because one of the more surprising things that I found out when researching about you, there was an article on Matt Waldman's uh, website. This guy is an absolute football junkie. If you've ever, if you've ever looked at Matt Waldman's website, this guy, football 24 seven, 365. Anyways, someone wrote an article on his website. Uh, it's the rookie scouting portfolio. He talked about how, he read in a coaching clinic book, I believe, that June Jones talked about how he kept scaling back the offense in 2005 to keep making it simple for you. So I thought it was really interesting that you mentioned the 2005 season and you described it just how I uh, thought you would. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, obviously June Jones is a great coach. 
especially when it comes to quarterback development. And I think I had some attributes that, that June, I don't think he had necessarily, you know, I was, I was able to scramble. I was able to run. And so because of that, I added a new dimension, you know, and to kind of his offense and, and um, you know, what he would coach. You know, a lot of times it would be kind of one of those things where he'd, he'd respond like, you know, he'd be watching me play. I'd drop back. I'd scramble to my left, scramble to my right. And he'd be like, no, no. And then I'd, I'd throw a pass down the field for 30 yards, you know, and he'd be like, yes, at the end of it, you know. And so um, I was kind of a little bit of a wild child my first year. And, yeah, he he definitely wanted me to to to, to be productive and, and learn, learn what the concepts was of the offense. And, um, I think that's why I brought up the San Diego State game because that was the game where the wildness to me kind of wasn't so much. It was more like in a, an effective production and capitalizing on the moments and making the reads I needed to make to make us successful in that game. Was there a certain moment in that game, Colt, that stands out to you or is really just the whole game in general? Well, there was one specific moment. We had this play called Go. You know, Coach June Jones's his offense was was cool. You know, he he liked to make things simple for the receivers and quarterbacks when it came to route adjustments and reads. One of the things the go route is is the inside receiver runs a flat immediately, runs right to the flat, and then uh, the middle receiver to a trip side. The middle receiver runs anything of like three different routes. He can run this like where he gets past the the hook to curl defender and then kind of widens away from the free safety mm-hmm. if they're in cover two. He'll turn it into a post and split the safeties. And if it's cover one, he'll just run down the field and kind of do a fade route one-on-one. And they called it in the NFL, they called it the honey hole, which in cover two, the cornerback comes up and he presses, but he releases the man down the field and he plays zone in the flat area. And so your read obviously was one to the flat, two to the seam that had the adjustments. And then the outside receiver had a go route, which was locked. He just had to go. When I came out, um, I read it perfectly where I saw that they were in cover two. Um, the cornerback, what he would do is jam and then come off, and, and that could be a kill shot if you throw the flat, you know, if you don't read it. And everything happened so fast, and I, I, uh, I took my eyes to the flat. I recognized it was cover two, and then I threw the ball in the honey hole, which is between the cover two safety and the corner and the flat. And I put it on the line, and I drilled it right in there. And it, it's a quick read. It takes – you know, you gotta, you gotta really be on it to make that read, make that throw. And I did it. And it was just like, that was the start of like hitting, getting the field. And I'm starting to get to understand everything you need to do. Even my receivers and everyone, as we, as we look back at that game, it was like, Cole got it. He got it now. That's awesome, man. That's uh that's great stuff. Um, you know, one of the fascinating things about June Jones, I'm really a big fan of his passing offenses over the years at Hawaii and at SMU. I wanted to talk to you. One of the things I found out about him is that he's notable for running no contact practices. Uh, how'd you like that? Yeah, for the most part, yeah, he ran practices like a pro style. You know, it's not that the O linemen and D linemen don't bang, they do. Um, but as far as like guys making tackles and big hits, it was it was more of a pro style practice, you know, where, you know, you're not, you try not to get people hurt, you know, and it, it's all about being in the, the element of just, you know, getting to your mark, making your, your adjustments, making your plays. But, but we really wouldn't go full, full out in practice. We would in training camp going into the season. We'd have our full practice days or our full contact days. But, yeah, he wouldn't. But there was a lot of things that I really enjoyed that he did as a coach as far as just getting us to learn the offense. And, you know, one of my favorite things was routes versus air. 
you know, in the beginning of practice, we would, you know, all the receivers would line up. June Jones would sit out there in like center field of the football field. He would call plays and we would just line up and run them. And then after I snapped the ball, he would yell out coverages and you would, you would make all your route adjustments. So one of the cool things is, is like in the NFL and stuff, they put a lot of pressure on the QB to make reads and to, 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 to make a lot of adjustments where June Jones spread the, the reads and the adjustments to the receivers, to the linemen and to the quarterback. So it was more like you had to get repetition and feel. And he would sit out there in center field and, and I'd go sit hike and then he'd go cover one. And then they all make their adjustments, cover three, you know, and that just made things easier. You know, a lot of times the NFL, remember, like if you recognize coverage, you have to make an audible, you'd have to make checks. But in, in, in June Jones's offense, you made adjustments and it was about getting the quarterback and the receiver on the, on the, on the same page. You know, that's interesting, Colt, that you uh, you mentioned about the quarterback and receivers just adjustments post-snap, because in researching for this interview, I, I saw that one of the biggest elements of the run-and-shoot offense is that it allows the receivers and quarterbacks to make adjustments post-snap. That's, that's apparently a big part of that offense. And I saw that I think 75% of the reads were made within one and a half seconds post-snap. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. And that also kind of correlates into the practice route versus air. Because right at the snap, he'd go cover two, cover three, whatever, cover four. You know, and, and then boom, they'd have to make their adjustments right then and there. Yeah, that's really awesome, man. That's some great insight about June Jones. Another fascinating part about June Jones, I remember when I watched you your, your senior year, I was like, why is San Jose State giving this guy problems? And I did a little bit of digging for this article, and, and I knew about Dick Tomey at San Jose State, but in doing research for this article, I realized that June Jones actually took a grad assistant job under Dick Tomey in 1983. So <laughs> I'm thinking Dick Tomey basically knew everything you guys were going to do. <laughs> I, I'm sure he had a very good uh, a good understanding of what we were trying to do. You know, as far as that game went, you know, I wouldn't say it was so much Dick Tomey. Not that Dick Tomey coached my cousin at the University of Arizona. My cousin walked on. He earned a full ride, and he was a great receiver for the University of Arizona. My other cousin, my cousin Brad's older brother, Brent, coached with Dick Tomey while I was playing for Hawaii at San Jose State. And now my cousin Brent Brennan is now the head coach for San Jose State. So they, they obviously knew and had a good understanding. You know, the reason I, I threw a lot of picks was that I was always a very accurate QB. And uh, that was the rain game. We were, we were swapping in a, a really muddy field. And um, I also had come off, I believe, I don't know if it was the week before, but I had thrown four or five picks the week before or a week or two before. And I had uh, injured my ankle really bad early in the season, and I was shooting it up every game the rest of the year. But in the early early times after I blown my ankle out, I found myself to be just almost just off a little bit when I throw sometimes. And when we were in the mud and the rain, it made it that much difficult. And when you're accurate and you barely miss, that means the defender's right there. You know, where I used to put the ball just in the right place, I was missing by, you know, putting it just on the back shoulder instead of the front shoulder. And they were able to make some great plays. And, um, you know, it was just a game where they showed up and they took advantage of the opportunity. And um, I wasn't, you know, I, I threw nine picks in, in two games around that time of the year. And 
I only ended the season with 18 total picks, so and which was a lot for me. But uh, those two weeks, Idaho and San Jose State, I threw a lot of picks, and I, I kind of accredit it to the San Jose State game. The weather conditions weren't great, which made it harder to do stuff. And also the fact that I, I was shooting my ankle up. I couldn't. It was the ankle that I pushed off when I threw. And I just wasn't as accurate as I usually am. And when I would take chances, and usually I'd win taking chances, uh, I was paying for it. Yeah. You know, I, and I saw you threw 75 pass attempts in that San Jose State game. Colt, did you need to ice that shoulder after that game, big guy? Well, you know what? I remember being at training camp, and we would throw thousands of passes a day. I remember my arm never hurt so much ever when training camp rolled around. So to go out there in a game day, you got adrenaline rushing, and only throw 75 passes, that's nothing. As my arm is not sore by any means, it was in such shape. How how many passes w- would you throw a day in training camp? God, I I just remember icing my arm and being in such pain from soreness. I mean, I, I, I couldn't tell you. There was no tally. But we would just throw all day, every day, two days, all day, every day, twice a day. That's awesome, man. Um, I tell you what, Colt, you're, you're honestly – Probably the most accurate quarterback I've ever seen in my life. I want to talk to you. I want to hear who taught you how to throw the football at a young age. Well, I think I had a knack for it. When I watched my first year in Pop Warner, I had a good little arm. And actually, people wanted me to play baseball because I had a really good arm. And uh, I just didn't like baseball very much. I played all the way up until my freshman year of high school, but then it wasn't the sport that I enjoyed. But I think I just naturally had a good arm. And I started playing football in Pop Warner the first year that you're allowed to play Pop Warner, which I think was fourth grade for me. And uh, I remember the, like one of the first days of practice, the, the, the coach was like, dude, you're a quarterback, I can tell. And so I played quarterback every, you know, every year I ever played football, I played quarterback. And I remember that, I was the my grandfather had a ranch in Colorado, and uh, we used to always go out there for Christmas time, you know, winter and and for summer. And I was the type of kid that just was just infatuated with football, and I could sit there and play with myself on the couch, you know, playing football. That is, um, I you know I'd run into the couch and bounce off, and then I'd go out into the field, and I just would play football by myself. But I think I was just so enamored with the sport that I threw the football constantly growing up, all the time. And even in high school, my dad got me linked up with um, Steve Clarkson and Bob Johnson, two great quarterback coaches of my era. And every in the springtime, every Saturday, Sunday, I was I was linked up going to their weekend camps and stuff like that. I remember one of the things I used to love to do, which I would recommend to any kid, is I would just sit on my back and just throw the football up in the air, which is all it works on is your release. You can't get full motion when you do that. And um, I could sit there with one hand and throw the fo- football for hours. And just throw it up. And I, I used to, the seams would create crosses on the wall. My mom would always get upset. But, um, cause sometimes I'd hit the wall and stuff. But I just threw the ball constantly from, from a young age all the way through. And, uh, even in the off seasons, I would be constantly going to workouts and throwing. And, uh, I think I just developed, uh, you know, they say a man can be an artist in anything and, and cooking and, and whatever the, the, the case may be. But I just, I found art in throwing a football. Yeah, you know, Colt, that's a really good description of your game. You were a true maestro on the football field. Mm-hmm. It, it was a, 
a thing of beauty watching you spin the spiral, my man. Um, right on. A big, a big question I have for you is, was that sidearm release, you know, your, your release actually, it reminds me a little bit of Philip Rivers, but yours is more like you come a little bit more through the, the passing zone than Philip Rivers does. Talk to me about that sidearm release. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I never really heard anybody talk about it before. Like, Oh, you, you, you drop your arm. But when I played my first um, game in junior college, we we crushed it my first game and I threw a bunch of touchdowns and after the game my dad came up to me he goes dude what's up with the sidearm and I'm like what what are you talking I had no idea what he was talking about and like I said I I just think that I got so comfortable throwing the football and I just created my own way to throw it and I never had issues you know I was always I, I think I went to modern day high school which is send a number of NFL quarterbacks to the league there's Matt Liner and plenty more guys guys I'm just Matt Barkley right now, but, but there you go Matt Barkley is what I was thinking of but they said they've had a lot of great quarterbacks come through there and and um um I just uh remember I set the record for uh most I think I still have it I I was at the highest completion percentage at that high school as well so I was always a very accurate quarterback at a young age but basically somehow between Leaving high school and showing up at JUCO a couple of years later, I, I developed this, this style of throwing. And I didn't find a problem with it because I could get it from point A to point B whenever I wanted. Yeah, man. I really like that sidearm throwing motion because I was talking to one of my friends. He's like, you know, he's he's the best sidearm QB I've ever seen. And really, there's not a lot of sidearm QBs because usually they teach that over-the-top release motion. And I remember watching your uh when they were talking about you on nfl draft breaking you down they were like he's gonna have to change his throwing motion to over the top but i mean my my philosophy of quarterbacks is this i think that it, when you've been throwing for that long and it's been working and clearly you could place the ball where where it needed to be i say if it ain't broke don't fix it yeah i agree i took that mentality on as well um you know, even my first preseason year in the NFL, you know, I was hearing that Jim Zorn was trying to change my motion constantly. But I went out. My first game, I was 9 for 10. My third game, I was 4 for 5. I think I had the highest completion percentage and the best sets of any QB. Maybe that was a rookie or maybe just in general. Oh, my first rookie. Yeah, you had, my, you had one of the best uh, preseason – one of the best preseason uh, – stat lines of any quarterback in NFL history as a rookie for sure. And so I just was like, obviously, you know, and they, they would, you know, the NFL draft is such a, such a joke in a lot of ways. The I way agree. They, 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 the way they, they'll build guys up and they'll talk guys down, but, but it's like, Oh, he's going to get a lot of passes bad. You know, and I didn't have a, a true sidearm release. I had a three quarter release a little bit different, but the thing was, is I could, I could adjust that depending on where the defenders were. And so, if if my throwing motion was so bad, why weren't balls batted down? I never had balls batted down. I would throw around guys. I throw through holes, and like I said, I just had a. I, I kind of created my artistic style of throwing, and there was it was so effective. I, I had no no reason to want to change it. And even when they wanted me to change it, and then I had the preseason I had, I'm like, why would I change it when I just had this preseason out there with NFL talent? Why would I, I'm not changing it? You know, and I know that created some friction but 
I just didn't see a need to change something that works. Like you said, don't, bro- don't, uh, don't fix what's not broken. Yeah, I agree, Colt. I, I think a lot of times with quarterbacks and throwing motions, some of the best quarterback coaches that I've listened to over the years, they have the philosophy of, you know what? This guy's been throwing this way for this long. It's working. We're not going to fix it. And you're one of the most accurate quarterbacks of all time, if not the most accurate, man. The the spiral you spun, like every time it came out of your hand, dude, it was like a ball machine. I mean, it was a thing of beauty watching your dimes drop from like, 50 yards away. I mean, it was something else, man. I appreciate that very much. Colt, did you have any sort of pregame routine to get yourself locked in and ready to go for the game? <laughs> oh, now you're going to get me in trouble. Let's see. Like, let's just say if we had a, uh, a home game here in Hawaii, you know, you'd wake up in the morning. Our game started at 6 o'clock Hawaii time here. You wake up in the morning and you go to, to breakfast. And then they can have chapel, and then you have, um, <clears throat> you'd have meetings anywhere from an hour to two, maybe an hour, a little over an hour, and then you chill out for a couple hours. We go to pregame meal, and I think I think we get on the bus around three o'clock or maybe two thirty, between two thirty and three, to go to the stadium. And so I would go to pregame meal, and then uh, you know the, the hotels here they all have balconies and everything, and this was something that every teammate of mine knew, and it started when I was in. Um, when I was in junior college, but I go to pregame meal and then I go to my, my balcony and I'd roll a blunt and I'd smoke a fat blunt before every game, both in junior college and in NFL and in college. And, um, then I would get in, take a shower, brush my teeth, get clothed up and then, uh, get on the bus and ride to the game. And, uh, I would just be in the zone right then and there. And, you know, one of the most difficult things, as a quarterback, especially going into a football game is, is you have to, uh, you know, there's all this anxiety. There's all this, Oh my God. Oh my God. You know, shoot, you know, you worry about the game and, and it kind of tortures you before the game. You just want to get out there and play. And being that it was, you know, three hours before kickoff that you get to the stadium or so, it allowed me to get to the stadium, listen to music, stretch out. I would go out and go up and down the field with my receivers. And uh, I just would get in the zone right then and there. And by the time the game rolled around, it was time to go down that tunnel. Every time you walk out of the tunnel, it's like someone shoves a needle of adrenaline in your body. And you ain't lit. You ain't high no more. You're just ready to play the game. And so it would take away all that pregame anxiety for me. You know, all my team knew it. Um, you know, I don't know if coaches knew it or not, but it was just something that I did. And it's just, you know, I, when I when I talk to the youth and I coach a lot of the youth, and that's not something I did until I was 21 and was put in jail for a crime I never committed, and and um, I was uh, arrested at 19, and then uh, maybe it was 20, and then uh, I went through just a hellish experience in Colorado, and as I came back to junior college, it was something that I started to do, and um, it was something that I didn't want to change, and I had I was the state player of the year in junior college. I had a great career at Hawaii. Um, I had a chance to play in the preseason in the NFL. And it's, I had four surgeries my first two years. And um, a new coaching staff came in. I had my fourth surgery. I missed some of the mini camps. And um, I got released uh, because they wanted to bring in John Beck. And uh, I went to the Raiders for a couple of weeks because they needed an arm during training camp. I knew I wasn't going to make the team. Played maybe one game in the preseason. 
but but by then my I got released after my uh, third year in the NFL, third preseason, and um, uh, I waited for the phone to ring, and then I got into a, a really bad car accident here in the state of Hawaii. When was the car accident, Colt? 2010, right? No, November 19th, 2010. You want to talk about it a little bit? Well, it just was really sad. I was doing everything right. If I remember correctly, the, my agent they got a call from the Raiders saying that they were planning on bringing me back. I think that Greg Kowski had gotten hurt, and so they needed to bring in another quarterback. And I had done a good job in practice in the preseason while I was there. I was doing a great job living here in Hawaii. I got up. They had this thing called Ashtanga Yoga that this world, world-class yogini, uh, yogini yog, yeah, I think that's the right word, um, named Norman on the Big Island of Hawaii. Um, I think he worked with David Robinson and a lot of great, great athletes before. And um, we would get up, you'd have to get there at 5.30 in the morning and you do this practice for about between one and two hours. And it was very, very intense. It wasn't like your normal yoga. It was like intense what we would go and do. And I, I, everybody who went and did it, their bodies were some of the best bodies I'd ever seen, both male and female. It really worked flexibility and strength. And, and um, so we got up, me and my girlfriend, who I dated for a number of years, she was driving when we got the car wreck. And it was sad because, um, you know, the mistake she made I, when she told me about it was something that I, I could have seen myself doing just the same way. But basically, we went to yoga. After yoga was done, um, Norman, the, the teacher, he had coconuts in the back of his truck, and we drank coconuts. We stopped at a, an organic food store, and I got some, some eggs. And my girlfriend was like, hey, I'll drive. Um, you can eat your eggs in the, the, and we were going out to a, a resort called Manalani to play uh, beach volleyball. And, um, on the way out, I was watching, my girlfriend wanted me to watch a video on her phone and I was watching it. And, um, as I was watching it, she was driving on this very infamous highway where it's only two lanes, one lane going one way, one, one lane going the other way. There's a lot of memorials alongside the road there. It's a very dangerous road. I think the speed limit is 55 or 60 miles an hour. She looked down at the video for a split second, and the car ended up going into the other lane. She looked up and grabbed the wheel, and the car uh, lost control, and we went head-on at like 50-something miles per hour. And uh, I spent uh, close to, I spent maybe nine or ten days in a coma. I woke up with a broken clavicle. I broke all my ribs on the left side. I broke my eye socket. I had a fracture in my neck. But the worst part was when the car flipped, because the car flipped, uh, my head hit the uh, door frame and uh, I cracked my skull and I ended up developing six hematomas in my brain and I ended up developing traumatic brain injury. And I tried to come back after that, but it, it just, after I went through more physicals as I tried to play for arena in Canada, I ended up uh, uh, eventually not getting cleared by the doctors for arena football. And they said, you know, football is no longer really an option. You just can't play it if you want to live a healthy, healthy and happy life. And so I, it was it was a hard pill to swallow, but I've been trying to move on ever since. Yeah, I you know, I, I listened to uh, the video of you on 4th and Loud on YouTube with the L.A. Kiss, how, you know, when they when they told you the news that you couldn't play football anymore, honestly, out of all the things I researched, man, that was – that was tough for me to listen to because I could, I could, uh, you could sense the sadness in your voice in that one, man. It was 
tough pill to swallow for a guy who's, I mean, you were a legend, man. You know, it's tough, man. I really felt for you, but I tell you what, so many college football fans across the country, myself included, were uh, so excited that you're okay, man. I appreciate that. One of the big questions I had was, I tell you a good question I got. I thought of, when you were talking about the marijuana, funny thing, mm-hmm. I think I have a philosophy about the NFL and marijuana, right? And, and I... I really don't care who listens to this because it's just me and you. But anyways, I think the NFL owners should have relaxed the marijuana rules in the NFL a long, long time ago. I think they should just let the players smoke up before the game and not put the cameras on it and just let them play. Because Calvin Johnson admitted to playing while he was taking Vicodin. It's like, why not? As long as it doesn't affect the quality of play of the game, guess what? No one cares. And not only that, I have a philosophy about Roger Goodell. (laughs) Fuck Roger Goodell, all right? (laughs) That's step one. Step two is if you watch the NFL draft, Roger Goodell, that guy looks like he's on drugs. Like Dave Portnoy is so right on this. Roger Goodell looked like he was on drugs in his basement. Like, he's he's delusional. He's out of touch with reality. And not only that, the NFL owners preach all this shit about safety, safety. Hey, yeah, right. If you guys gave a fuck about the players' safety, let me tell you something. You would not schedule 17 games in an NFL season. It's all about money, and anyone who says otherwise is full of shit. You know, the NFL, they had their, their rules because I obviously never had any problem getting in trouble for that when I was in the NFL. And and, and it's not it's not bad. You, you get one street drug test a year. You don't know when it is. You just know that you have to be clean between this certain time period. And, um, you know, if, if you're disciplined, because the truth is with substances, man, it, 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 it does, you know, every every substance out there can become problematic if moderation or if, if there's not a conscious ability to, to use it, whatever it is alcohol weed or whatever else people use you know and so um obviously i think we we've always known the nfl wants to make money and everything um i think that their rules were were pretty mellow you know they they they, you know you'd have to be kind of stupid and and undisciplined to get messed up with getting getting caught because you know when the test is coming you know when to be clean i mean it's you don't know between a certain time period but you don't know when it's going to show up in that time period but you just know during that time period you got to be clean And, and so if you had discipline you get clean for those time periods, and 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 then you didn't have to worry about it till the following year. I remember chilling with Calvin Johnson at, at the awards banquets and stuff like that. We hung out, and um, you know I can tell you I remember mm, smoking out two Pro Bowl receivers that will eventually be Pro Bowl guys. You know, and and from my understanding, when I went to these things, a lot of guys did smoke. Um, but it's everyone's different. You know, one guy that can smoke before a game, the next guy could be awful. You just don't know. Everyone's an individual in this world and and everyone goes through life in different ways. And and for me, I found the ability for it to to make a positive effect on my life. And, and uh, being in the car accident and being, you know, having blood clots later on that have hospitalized me for nine months and I've had to learn how to walk again. I've been given unbelievable amounts of pain pills that I, I chose to get off because one, I value my liver and two, um, I, uh, you know, was able to, to, to resort to, to THC to be a major pain reliever. And 
I know that my girlfriend, she trimmed for a number of years in Oregon. I'd always go up to visit her and she would go to THC seminars. And she remembers hearing uh, former professional football players advocate for how uh, THC can be a very beneficial thing instead of the pain pill route, you know, but everyone is different and it don't matter. Like if someone sits down and drinks enough water, you'll kill yourself. And so it, 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 you know, the substance obviously has its positive and negative effects. And I think it's how you use it that makes it either a positive or negative effect. You know, I read the book. Um, oh, of course I'm blanking on it, but, um, but you know, never making assumptions, you know, I didn't get a chance to see Roger Goodell, the draft or anything like that. You know, it's harder to watch stuff. I, my draft day sucks, but um, you know, I, I don't know any of that, but I just know that, you know, taking care of the NFL players is, is, is an absolute important factor because I like the game with the physicality involved. We sign up knowing what we're getting into. And we, we play that, that, the game with that, that, you know, that notion that we could get hurt, drastically hurt at any moment out there. And we sign up to play it. And so I don't want to see the game change much, but I do think that the, the players deserve to be protected and protected in every way possible. What are your thoughts on the 17 game uh, schedule call? I just thought with all the injuries that are already piling up in a 16 game schedule, I don't, I don't know why you would toss on one more game. I personally, I thought it was pretty stupid. Your thoughts? Well, I mean, I remember in the 16th game, if you're making the playoffs, you're not even starting your starters, basically, in the 16th game. And so with that said, you know, how many, how many teams are having great years and, and the starters won't even play in game 16? So it is confusing to see why they added a game. I'm not involved in those talks, nor, nor do I have, you know, intuitive knowledge that, I just know that I don't think there needs to be an extra game because 16 was, you know, it was more like a 15-game season than it really than anything with 16 games. But, you know, I just hope the players are able to deal with the changes. You know, they have made some good adjustments to training camp and to the offseason and stuff like that. Um, but uh, and now, you know, back when I was growing up, two a days every day for a week or two, you know, now it's two a day, one a day, two a day, one a day. And so I think that, they're slowly moving in the right direction, but yeah, it is hard to try and uh, figure out why 17 games was felt needed. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Talk to me about the visor, Colt. You rocked the shaded visor, which was one of the sickest pieces of gear that any quarterback I've ever seen wear. I saw you wear the rainbow visor at the Senior Bowl. I know you're a big Sean Taylor fan. And, and I've yeah. seen, I, I saw a big article about this in the DC sports blog, but go ahead and tell our audience about why you decided to wear the shaded visor and really what it meant to you. Well, like, yeah, I mean, obviously growing up, like as a quarterback, you know, you love watching offense, but, but you come to respect the other side of the ball. And Sean Taylor just in, in college, he just captivated me. I just, I used to, when I was growing up and I was younger, I used to play quarterback and safety. And even my freshman year of high school, I played safety. And, um, God, I just, and, and during that time, Sean Taylor was at Miami. Miami was on that run. And, and could you imagine playing against Sean Taylor and Ed Reed? I mean, what a nightmare for a quarterback. You know? Oh, yeah. Those and, Miami teams and, were loaded. And that Miami team had swag, man. They had drip, man. They, they, they were – and I'll never forget the, the game that Sean Taylor played in the rain against Florida State. Oh, absolutely. Just, he was just visored out in that rainbow visor, and he was just thug, man. He was just 
He was so fun to watch, and I believe he scored either one or two touchdowns, but it was a very, very low-scoring game, and it was like this guy transcends what, what side of the ball. He scores whether he's on defense or I remember seeing his, his, his high school tape, and he was just as good on offense. And I was always blown away by Sean Taylor and, and just the way he carried himself, the way he played. And so I remember I uh, I went to uh, junior college, and, and my sister, she was involved in the snowboard business. Um, she lived up in, near Aspen, Colorado, and she was working, and she had started a, a snowboard shop. And um, they had connections. She knew all the reps at Oakley and stuff. And, and actually, it turned out to be this great story, but um, – after I, I went through my Colorado experience and I had to go to trial, I believe my second or no, my third week at, at, in junior college, I was at trial all week. And um, I came back and, and I'd asked my sister for a mere advisor like Sean Taylor's. I remember getting off the plane after being in a trial the whole week and after being in jail for a couple of days. And, and uh, this box was sitting there and I opened it and it was the visor. I, I put it on. And that week when we played, we played OCC Community College, Orange County Community College. And uh, I was going to sit the first half because I hadn't been there all week in practice. And, and there was obviously still a lot of, you know, uh, scrutiny about what I had just gone through. And, um, and so I put the, the visor on and I went out and I sat the first half. And I think we were down seven zip or whatever. And I came in in the second half with my mirrored visor and um, I threw four touchdowns, and we won the game easily. And that mere advisor just became part of my persona on the football field. The great news about it was that the Oakley rep that uh, had sent my sister the, 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 the visor, um, and she forwarded it to me, he ended up being the Oakley rep here in Hawaii. And so when we got to Hawaii, we were able to um, – get our equipment guys to get our advisors through Oakley and they would give us an echelon of 10 advisors, you know? And, um, and like at practice, that's when we were the most fitted. We had blue green visors. We had, we had everything out there at practice. And then Oakley had this great, I forget what the word is. I want to say like metallic, but they had, they had this great visor where it technically wasn't mirrored, but like on an overcast day or whatever, certain games you watch, you think mirrors up. But the closer you get, to the to like when the refs would come up to check us, it almost would be see through with a little bit of tint. And then the second they would walk back, maybe five yards, ten yards, it would be mirrored over. And they, you know, but they never they'd walk up to us to check on. They'd be like, "Well, that yeah, I can see through it, but I'm like, you know, a foot away from you, two feet, feet away from you." But then you back up five, ten yards, and, and and it's mirrored over. And so we all were blessed to have those visors my junior and senior year, and it it was. Obviously, identity that I created in junior college, and and it was in kind of an ode to Sean Taylor because he was my favorite college player, and I remember, you know, a lot of great Miami players that that rocked it, and I I loved it, and uh, and so yeah, man, it, it, I carried through, and I was blessed to wear it, and then my third year when I was in the NFL, I had Tridgians in my eyes, so I got cleared for a ten advisor, and and uh, where I was allowed to wear it, and so when I was with the Raiders, I had a blacked out visor. But, um, but yeah, that was just an identity I created in a, in a really, really tough, unfair time in my life. And there was something about going out there when I was in junior college, you know, I would get a lot of, a lot of crap talked to me. A lot of guys would say some really messed up stuff, but I could just look at them. They couldn't see my eyes. They couldn't see nothing. They just saw a figure, a mirrored over visor figure looking at them. They couldn't ever get to me. And if anything, if they were talking trash to me, they were just looking at themselves in my mirrored visor. 
and it just became kind of this, I don't know, this, like I said, this persona that I, I, I took on and, and luckily coming to Hawaii, we were able to continue it. Me and my receivers wearing the, the metallic visor and it was awesome. I'm glad that we did. Yeah, dude. I love you guys wearing the tinted visors. It was, it's always honestly favorite piece of football equipment ever. If I yeah. was running the football league, I would let everyone that wanted to wear a visor. Everyone would have visors. Those things are so awesome. And they are too. And, and like also as a quarterback, you know, you got hands coming at you, guys trying to get to you and stuff. And there was something about putting that visor on where you could just, your eyes could be open and you could see the field tremendously. And you subconsciously, you never had any worry about like, you know, like you never got jittery. You never like felt like, oh, you know, it's like you were in your own little dome. And, and, and unless someone hits you physically, no one could touch you. I thought it helped. That was part one of our interview with Colt Brennan. Stay tuned within the next week for part two of our awesome interview with college football legend Colt Brennan. You've been listening to the Flow Theory Podcast. You can listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and tune in.